Let me open up your Bibles to Matthew 5 as we look at the final outline that's been written, at least, on the attributes of God. I, I do believe this will be it. Uh, I was looking over the outline here this morning, and I, I was rather ambitious with it at its length. Uh, so there is a possibility that I may cut it off after the fourth point, uh, and we'll finish it this afternoon. If I do that, and you have your outlines with you for the afternoon study, we'll just do that next Sunday. Uh, but there's a lot of reading in this one, and I think I may have overestimated my own ability to stand in one place with a cane. So we'll, we'll see what the Lord will allow us to do. But if you'll look in your Bibles at Matthew 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 20. Steve did mention the Sermon on the Mount. That is uh, exactly what this is. It's only a portion of it. Matt, the Sermon on the Mount covers uh, way more than just what I'm going to read here today. But I want you to keep in mind, we're looking at an attribute of God. We're looking at the preference of God. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 20, these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath, have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law, this is what Steve read earlier, or the prophets, I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass one jot or one tittle, shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these uh, least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven." But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now this isn't necessarily my text, but a great starting point when we try to consider what the preference of God is, why not consider the very sermon the Lord Jesus delivers here? There's a lot of context to these 20 verses. Uh, I will trust that we covered that well in our afternoon study when we went through this. All of this, of course, is recorded if you want to go back and listen to that. But now turn over to Genesis chapter 2. The Lord has never been shy in telling his people what his preference is. I want to make sure that we cover the entire gamut of it. In Genesis 2, verses 16 through 17, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man. Which man? Who's he talking to? There is but one, Adam. And through this commandment to Adam, he commands all generations of men because all men came from Adam. 
And he commanded him, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. To this we read in Revelation chapter 22, verses 7 through 13. Surely God has changed. Sixty-five books have gone by. Six thousand years or so has gone by from the moment of Genesis 2 to where we are now. Steve's been covering this chronologically. We're certainly going to read something different now because time has passed. Man has changed. God has changed, right? Genesis 22, verses 7 through 13. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. That means every jot and every tittle that the Lord was expounding upon there in Matthew 5, that he gave warning to keep and not stray from, and certainly not teach astray from, they're very important. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren and prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. It has been made clear that we are to worship God and God only, and that we are to be holy, for he is holy. We've seen that as part of the, uh, it's been, I guess, two months at this point that we've been studying the attributes of God. We know that that is his commandment of us, but I want you to understand it is his preference, and his preference does not stray. His preference holds the same immutability that his other characteristics hold because God does not change. Your circumstances change. That does not change the preference of God. Your bank account changes. Your marital status changes. Your destitution changes. Your cravings, your desires, your hairline, your back, it all changes. But the preference of God does not. His commandment for us to be holy for he is holy is still true today as it was back in Genesis 2 when he told Adam. When he spoke to man in time for all time of what his preference was to be. As we can consider God's attribute concerning his preference, allow me to begin with a question. Is it leadership to demand excellence but never teach it? Is it leadership to demand excellence but never teach it? God will accept nothing less than a, than a righteousness that exceeds the overly religious, according to what we read in Matthew 5. He gives the example of the scribes and Pharisees. They're the overly religious. They're the ones that twice a week uh, tithe and fast. They're the ones that basically dictate to everyone else in that period how it is that uh, they were to serve God. And he says that he will accept nothing less than a righteousness that exceeds them. For those he will grant entrance into the kingdom of heaven. What then is righteousness, this preference of God? What is it? 
It is that which comes by faith. And if you'll turn to Hebrews 11, we'll spend the remainder of uh, this outline, possibly the day, in Hebrews 11. Consider what it says in Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. It is that very faith that Jesus was teaching there in Matthew 5. This faith must be demonstrated that the world might see, not put under a bushel, not hidden, not squelched, not cut off, not put out, not discreetly used, but openly proclaimed. What is it that we read in 1 Thessalonians 5 in our devotion this morning? Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. Abstain from all appearances of evil. These are the preferences of God. This is what he's prefer for his people. Now, I don't say prefer, and uh, humanly speaking, when we say, boy, I'd really prefer that you leave a tip. And we could preach all day on all those who require a tip now. Um, <laughs> DoorDash has really hurt us there. But that's a different type of preference. This is an immutable God that accepts no less. So when he has a preference, it is what he requires. When he has a preference, it should be our desire above and before all else. The very beginning of, the, of Matthew 5 emphasizes the importance of sight. Jesus saw the multitude, as we see there in Matthew 5.1. He went up into the mountain that he too would be seen. He goes on to teach what was to be our outward attitude to all the world according to his preference and not that of our flesh. Then he made the connection to a fulfilling or a completing that would take place. This is the same picture that Jesus painted for John the Baptist concerning his baptism over in Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17, which says the following, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. There it is again complete or fulfill all righteousness then he suffered him and jesus uh, when he was baptized went up straightway out of the water and lo the heavens were opened unto him and he saw the spirit of god descending like a dove and lighting upon him and lo a voice from heaven saying this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased by faith jesus went to jordan by faith john baptized his master in response righteousness was fulfilled or completed we too should honor the preferences of God. Now, lest we get too legalistic, let's clear some things up here of, of, John, of Jesus' baptism, rather. Uh, would God have been pleased any other way? Would the heavens have opened up? Would the Spirit of God descend like a dove if John had just flat out said, I can't, I won't, I'm not worthy to be used? Would God's people have been let go if Moses had never gotten over his dumb tongue, his words, not mine, and gone to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, that they shall worship God as commanded, that they would fulfill the preference, if you'll allow me to use that word there, of our God. It is foolishness for us to chase down the answers to these questions. Would he any other way? There is no other way. Jesus says he must. 
Why? Because it fulfills all righteousness. There's no other way for us to concern ourselves with. Men spend years arguing about the ways of salvation. There's only one. There's no other kindness. There's only one. Ye must be born again. Ye must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. No, that's not two different things. That's the same thing. Let's not waste any more time chasing down all the ways in which this could have happened some other way. There's not a multiverse of possibilities. There is but one. Thankfully, our God is one that not only made the path possible, but demonstrates it. He demands excellence. He prefers excellence. He's illustrated excellence. He's edified in the paths of excellency. And we can interchange excellency with righteousness because this is what he's talking about here. So let us consider for our edification the following examples of his preference demonstrated. And we're going to use Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 through 40 for the remainder of this lesson. And again, if time permits and we, we get through all of it this morning, then we'll uh, go with the teaching as planned for the afternoon. If not, we'll finish it this afternoon. The first one for us to consider, what we've already read a little bit of, is Abel. We see, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 uh, of Hebrews now, Hebrews 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. How many by the time we get to verse 4 have already forgotten where faith and righteousness comes from? Uh, I being uh, a brother, I have a brother in, in the flesh, in my home, uh, and, and understanding brotherly competition, I get to verse 4 sometimes, and in the very beginning I hear Abel beat his brother. Uh, and of course, uh, in turn, Cain physically beat his brother which brothers do all the time, maybe not unto death. Uh, but what we're seeing here is not Abel just outdoing his brother. Let us go back and read verse 3. Through faith, we understand that the world's, worlds were framed by the word of God. This very verse confesses that those who understand Genesis 1 only understand it by faith. It could be another verse here. By faith, Baptists understand that God created the universe. And without faith, you probably don't understand that. Without faith, evolution probably does sound pretty intriguing. Probably does make a lot of sense. It's in the movies. It's in our schools. It lines up with the harmony of all that we've ever been taught. Jurassic Park supports it. That means Michael Crichton liked it. Steven Spielberg likes it. And Spielberg and Lucas are tight. So then Star Wars and Indiana Jones, they all like it. All of Hollywood likes it. Evolution must be real. But by faith, this is undone. By faith, we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God. And in John 1, we know the word of God is Jesus Christ. We know that it was ordained and brought to pass by God himself. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. That might sound like a riddle, but I believe the born again will understand what they're saying here. It's not as simple as one and one make two. It's as simple as God made everything. Forget what one and one do. God made everything. God made one and one and two. He made the whole equation. 
He made the variables that all tie into this equation. Let us consider Abel, though. Back in Genesis 4, verses 2 through 5, we read, And Abel was the keeper of sheep, but Cain. We kind of have a little bit of a uh, foreshadowing here with the phrase, but Cain. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. It, our knowledge of Genesis 3, this means that Cain was a tiller of the curse. He tended to that hard ground that was belly up with thorns because of the sin of man. He was tilling and working against sin while Abel was a keeper of the sheep. And in process of time, it came to pass. And we, when our Genesis study, we've discussed this phrase already. But in the process of time is the similar phrase, the fulfillment of time, the fulfillment of God's, uh, of what God had laid out for time, if you will. It came to pass, and it came to pass exactly how God had ordained for it too. That Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Preacher, how could you say that in the process of time, the time in which God decreed, that this very act, which was not what God had required, would take place from Cain. Are you saying God made Cain a sinner? I'm saying Cain never had any other options. I'm saying that it's the nature of every fallen man, every totally fallen man, to continue on in wickedness. Oh, but preacher, it's a misunderstanding. Cain didn't have sheep. Cain was a tiller of the ground. He's a victim of circumstance. Remember that judgment we talked about a few weeks back? You take that victim of circumstance argument to the, to the stand. You take that to the judge. You take that to the Lord Jesus and say, I only ever sinned as a victim of circumstance. And all he has to simply do is prove that you're lying in that very moment. Because one sin uncovered is a damning sin for all eternity. One sin not removed by the blood of Christ, is enough to damn you to hell for all eternity. Are you washed in the blood? Are you born again? If you're not, it takes but one sin. You've probably committed at least that one this morning. I know I have. What will you do? How will you cover it? How will you meet the preference of God? How will you obtain righteousness? Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Cain brought of what he had. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. Abel had a different nature, a different job. Abel brought of what he had. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Uh, again, I, I don't want to pick apart verses that we've taught, because we've taught through Genesis, but I want you to understand this. Does this mean Cain could have never met the requirement of God? Spiritually speaking, Cain was depraved. Spiritually speaking, he wasn't of the promised seed. But common sense speaking says that Abel probably needed of the ground as well. Common sense speaking tells a man with any kind of business sense at all, a trade could have probably been worked out in which Cain could have found a blood offering, but he did not. Why? He had no desire to. He had no understanding of what it was that God required, and he also didn't really want to. 
This is the same thing we've seen of Cain and Esau, or Cain and Esau, uh, of Esau and Jacob recently. Esau despised his birthright. Do we feel bad for Esau because God loved one and hated the other? Esau also hated his birthright. Esau also didn't want anything to do with what it was that Jacob was inheriting at the, at the point of our study currently. God asked for a blood sacrifice, Hebrews 9.22, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. And Abel had faith in his word. He had faith that God had brought about the universe exactly as described by mom and dad, Adam and Eve. Cain did not show faith and was rejected. This is a hard thing probably for us to understand. But if we were to read Genesis 4.1, it sounds as though Eve believes that the promised one, this promised seed, had already, it's there, it's here. It had come forth from her loins as God had proclaimed. She had no understanding, and I thought about this a lot in Steve's teaching this morning. She had no understanding of thousands of years, uh, of multiple uh, links in the one chain, uh, of multiple generations that would come forth. And don't, don't belittle Eve in your mind. How could she? She was the first woman. She'd never had kids. She didn't know how much easier grandkids were going to be or great-grandkids were going to be. None of that had ever happened. As we uh, look at the Israelites, as Steve was teaching for us this morning, and I don't want to step on his toes, but what, what the thought that was coming through my mind is uh, those little things, those feasts they didn't honor, that they didn't do and haven't for a while, they probably thought what harm could come of it in our 70 years. But 140 years later, their generations paid dearly for forsaking God's law. The, those who rejected what the, what the spies had come back with there in numbers, the two spies, they embraced what the other spies had to say, but they ignored what Caleb and Joshua said. This is our land. Let us go in and take it because God is good and God had promised it unto us. Oh, they say thee nay. They say, let's stone Moses. Let's stone Aaron. Let's get out of here. Let's go back to Egypt. Anybody who's ever studied the Old Testament, did it sound like an easy journey to get to where they were? But they wanted to go back through it again, rather than show a little faith and go into that promised land. That whole generation all but Caleb and Joshua, perished in the wilderness. What can a little leaven do? It can leaven the whole lump. It can ruin an entire lump. It runs wild, as sin always does. What harm could there be in taking a little treasure for our spoils? God commanded you not to. And Joshua had to lead the Israelites to stone an entire family. And we'll get there eventually, but when I teach through that portion of text, I like to think of what the grandkids and what the kids were thinking. Dad, why are our people about to stone us? Think of this man who, uh, who didn't understand righteousness, didn't understand faith, didn't understand obedience, saw one trinket and took it and buried it and said, what harm could it be? Nobody knows about this thing. God does know about that thing. Confess one to another. He had to confess as stones were lifted in arms by his brethren to his kids and grandkids, you're about to die because I sinned. 
You're about to die because I'm unfaithful unto our God. You're about to die because I saw something and I just couldn't keep my hands off of it. You're about to die because something I just had to have that spent its entire time in my ownership in the dirt, hidden, wasn't enjoyed, is now ruined our family. God witnessed to Abel's faith by accepting his sacrifice. And by this witness, Abel still speaks to us. More than the blood crying out to God there in Genesis 4, it still speaks to us there in Hebrews 11. It still speaks to us now thousands of years later. Consider Enoch. Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. Verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In our afternoon study, we've already seen many individuals, most recently the dad with the demoniac child, come to Jesus and believe he could, and he did. They came to him and believed he could, and he did. Now, this isn't the way of salvation, necessarily. You're not, you're not knocking, asking, seeking in the regards of letting him in. But do you believe that he is God? Do you believe this one that gave commandment to Cain and Abel, that gave commandment to Enoch, and these countless others we're about to read, is indeed God? In a wicked age, Enoch lived a dedicated life. How did he do that? How would we do that today? Enoch trusted God's word. Enoch was a preacher of righteousness. Oh, brother, it was so much easier back then. Uh, you know, cell phones are wicked, but let's not just assume that we live in the most wicked of times because we have cell phones. Enoch... There's wicked times have been since the fall of man. Wicked times, perilous times, evil times, horrible temptation. What's it say back in Genesis 6? That man's imagination was only evil continually. Continually. It's like an F, E-T-H, added to the end of it. It's for all time. Man's imagination still to this day are only evil continually we see in jude verses 12 through 15 as he speaks of these times he says these are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you feeding themselves without fear uh, and he's talking about the ungodly he repeated that phrase quite quite often before this part of the of the book Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. These were the times of Enoch. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them, all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Were the times of Enoch hard? 
There's a lot of ungodliness there in that last verse. The times of Enoch were wicked. The times of Steve and Joe and Isaac and Clark, they're wicked. We are preachers of righteousness. We are called to give the gospel in dark times. Why? Because we are light. Because of what we read in Matthew 5. It is our commission to be light. It is, as Malachi described it, our burden of the Lord. Enoch believed that God would be true to his own expectations, and God was, and showed his good pleasure by taking him to the kingdom so that he did not die. He was translated. What a gift. The reward of faith is especially important as we read of it in Hebrews. Consider Hebrews 10.35, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Hebrews 11.26, Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Hebrews 12, verses 10 through 11, They verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. How do we know peace? How do we know the fruit of righteousness? We are led by the Lord. We consider as Enoch did, uh, as Abel did who God is, we consider as Enoch did the word of God, and that it is indeed true. This is the preference of God. Well, if God would but... Think of the dead man. As he is a great gulf away from Lazarus. If you would but send one from the dead. Send, send Lazarus back. If you would but confirm the word of God. Yet one more time. This dead man in hell... Echo, uh, well, it was beforehand, so he says what is echoed in Acts. If you would, but it's almost a convenient. Uh... No. The word of God is powerful, more powerful than a two edged sword. It cuts to the marrow. Well, yeah, but if God would today come back, perform a, a couple years of ministry, perhaps, suffer great humiliation, Take his cross to the mountain. Get on it. Cry out it is finished. I would but believe. He already did. He's not going to come and die again. He only had to die but once. He was a perfect sacrifice. He was in control of the entire thing. Recognize him as a perfect high priest, a perfect sacrifice, the application of his perfect atonement. That work's already done. You have but to believe and repent. I know, that's, that's a tough mountain to move. But those who believe and repent follow. Those who believe and repent are faithful to do what God has asked, asked, called for them to do. Consider Noah. How many in here think they could have done what Noah did? Now, I'm not asking the carpenters in the room to raise their hand and see if they could build a boat. I'm saying, how many of you? I've been pastoring for almost eight years. Been preaching for 
probably pretty close to a dozen, I guess, at this point. That is 10% at least of the amount of time in which Noah preached righteousness while building that ark and never had any fruit. None came by the ark and said, you know, I was thinking about what you were preaching the other day, that rain that we've never seen, that flood that we've never experienced, and I, I think there might be some truth to that. Could you set aside some time not immediately, but you know, like a month or two down the road, maybe in the next year or two, and talk to me and my wife about faith. Nobody ever did that. And I would add, those who do it in that manner now are only half-hearted. Those who actually know who God is, who've actually been made to fear God and believe the truth of his word, they don't ask for an appointment in a month or two. Lord, save me! Lord, deal with me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, have mercy upon me right now. What have we seen in the ministry of Jesus Christ? We see the word immediately, a lot. Not, oh, when it's not a bother, could you set aside some time? My son is foaming and perishing. He needs a healing. If you could do but anything, if you could but believe, and the father cries out, Heal thou my unbelief when it's convenient. In a couple months' time. No. No, a repentant sinner cries out. He knows he's drowning. A repentant sinner knows that but there be regeneration, but there be a work of salvation. They shall perish. Again, remind me how many thought they could do what Noah did. 120 years preaching righteousness and we're so dependent these days on fruit so dependent that the pastor would add members to the church pastors don't add members to the church so dependent that visitors would come pastors don't drag visitors to church they try they try to give the gospel they witness we can't all be eddie and ernie y'all bringing people in shaming me but listen folks None of us could do what Noah did. And Noah didn't do it either, but by the grace of God. Noah there in Hebrews 11, verse 7, by faith. None of these verses that describe these men of God start with Noah did it, Enoch did it. It all starts with by faith. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet. This just means that God warned Noah of things nobody had ever heard about before, nobody had ever seen. Nobody never experienced. Nobody could ever say a flood like, because there'd never been one. Nobody could ever say water falling from the sky like that one time, because it had never happened. But when God told Noah, he was moved with fear, and he prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. No one had seen or anticipated judgment through a flood. Noah saw it by faith. Noah believed that it was the preference of God to bring judgment in this manner. Why else would he do it? 
Genesis 6, verses 5 through 13 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beasts, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and a perfect in his right, uh, perfect in his generations rather. And Noah walked with God. How do you walk with God? By faith. Enoch did it, and he kept on walking. And Noah begat three sons: Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was, uh, the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Would God have been justified in wiping out all life on the earth without giving any warning to Noah? Yes. It is for his namesake that he saw fit to use Noah in the manner that he did. God is always justified. I think we'd get a lot further in our understanding of the word of God if we understood he does not need to be justified. He is the, already the defining result of the act of justification. He is on the other side of justification. He needs not to be justified. What he does is righteous because he did it, and he's absolutely righteous. Everything we read in the Word of God that God did, as we are looking at the attributes of God, we must understand He was justified to do it. And He was righteous. And He is righteous. And whatever comes next, whether it be an asteroid, whatever comes next, whether it be, as Steve said, another couple hundred years before the rapture, perhaps, He's justified in fulfilling His Word when He sees fit to do it. Again, we don't think it'll be likely that long. He doesn't have to wait another seven seconds before coming again and kicking us into the seven years. But what we see here of Noah specifically is a man who believed by faith and was moved with fear. Faith leads to works. Noah's attitude and actions condemned the unbelieving, wicked world around him. It judged them, not because Noah was better than them, but because Noah believed a truth that judged them. He said, a judgment's coming. I firmly believe a judgment's coming. Repent. I'm building this here ark because the judgment is coming. And the only deliverance is inside that ark. I'm building it to the specifications that God himself has given me I'm telling you right now, if you're not on the other side of the pitch, if you're not on the other side of the atonement that's put both inside and out of this ark, you will perish. This is what he preached for 120 years. You all Baptists don't like to hear hellfire and brimstones for a couple minutes, but he preached it for 120 years. What else could he have preached? He built an ark for 120 years. He saw the judgment of God coming as real as it had already begun. And it had. 
I'm sure there were scoffers that said, that old preacher man's always preaching the same message over and over and over again. Judgment, judgment, judgment. Beloved, judgment is coming. Who can look at this sorry world that we live in and say that judgment is not coming? Who can look at anything that occurs in this life and say God is well pleased? He could prolong it if he so desired. And, and that we, that's man's terms. Uh, he's not changing what he had already set in motion. But it could be prolonged in time in our understanding of it if that was what he had already desired to do. But as we see it with Noah and Moses so far, that their only appeal to God, and if you understand scriptures, the only appeal they ever had to God was his grace, was his name. Remember, we read recently where Moses said, uh, and he didn't necessarily say, what will the world think? But his, his appeal to God was that the world will see that we were your people, that you removed from Egypt just to allow to die, just to slaughter because of our unfaithfulness because of our despicableness. And if he had done it, he would have been justified to do it. Who could stand before God and say, it's not right, you taking us out of Egypt, you bringing us through the plagues, bringing us through Jordan, bringing us through all these things just to allow us to die. None will stand before God and say that. He is righteous, not just in his own eyes, but in all time, in all space, in all existence, God is absolutely righteous. We will pick these last four points up uh, this afternoon, and we'll begin with Abraham uh, there in verse 8.